This talk was given at the Monastic Conference on the Environment, Gethsemane 3. It was given by Sister Judith Sutera. The title of her talk, The Rule of Benedict. Um, I, as you listen to this, you're going to hear all kinds of places where these two go together. This is kind of exciting because I didn't know what he was going to say. When he says we compared notes, it was about two seconds of saying, I didn't find much. Did you find much? I didn't find much. So, um, But it's going to be interesting how, <clears throat> how these overlap. If asked to identify the specific teaching of St. Benedict on the environment, as with the Buddha, most of Benedict's followers would be hard-pressed to come up with a chapter and a verse. Benedict never mentions a specific love for nature or a concern for ecology or even acknowledgement of the relationship between the community and the nature around them. Yet there must be something inherently healthy in a way of life which is known for its ability to live simply and in harmony with nature. Now, I have to say that's not always been the case in every time and place, but by and large the good reputation is there. So if the key is not in his words, in his instructions, one might have to look at the life and conclude that there is some underlying spirit which causes people to act the way they do. First of all, we have to remember Benedict is not the founder of a monastic tradition. He doesn't come at the beginning of an innovative period. He comes at the end of one. He is the synthesizer and the purifier of the tradition. The impulse which first brought people to form communities was wrought by the transition from the ideal of the early church and the realities of life under persecution. And, of course, the first foundation is scripture. And the scripture foundation is that in the beginning the world was unified. It was one in praise, in unity, in the image of God, in this ideal garden. The other thing that moved the monastics to the, in the desert was the teaching of Jesus that said the kingdom is here and the kingdom is now. So they believed in the eschatological nature of life. Everything should be moving towards the fulfillment of the kingdom, which was the circle back to the beginning. Paul identified Jesus as the new Adam, the one who had opened the gates of paradise and would restore the natural goodness and the natural balance. So, these early Christians concluded that if the kingdom is here and the kingdom is now, then maybe somebody ought to start acting like it. What would that life be like? And how, by beginning to model it, can we bring it closer to fulfillment? So just as today there's the catchphrase, what would Jesus do? Maybe monasticism is founded in, would this happen in Eden? It's no accident that so many of the desert stories are about the monastics' relationships with animals, with the earth providing miraculously for their needs, the, for the development of communities that were of one heart. The desert was to become the flowing garden of primeval holiness. He talked about being pre-modern. That's about as pre-modern as you can get. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden, as the old song says. But Benedict, unfortunately, doesn't waste any parchment theologizing about this. So he simply assumes the premise that a harmonious community of people committed to living a life that is accountable and holy 
will strive to do the right thing. Would this happen in Eden? He merely describes in the rule how these people live and function. Right thinking will evoke right practice. Right practice will lead to right thinking. And the foundation of the practice is simply being in the school of the Lord's service. On the most practical of levels, the Benedictine is committed to stability, professes stability. This place and this people will be my place and my people for my entire life. Stability requires environmental responsibility because simply I cannot poison my own well. A farmer does not take everything from the land and then just move next door. A family may not exhaust all of its resources and expect more to fall from the sky. A neighborhood cannot dump its waste in its own streets and not suffer ill effects of body and spirit. A monastery is a tangible place, and the monastic is a person of a place. It's no wonder, then, that Benedictines, and especially Cistercians, contributed so much to the technical and engineering aspects of land and water conservation in past century. Benedict does sort of lay the foundation for this in his comment in Chapter 66, quote, The monastery should, if possible, be so constructed that within it all necessities are contained. His are practical concerns. He also notes in chapter 55 that for other items, such as clothing, the community should, quote, use what is available in the vicinity at a reasonable cost. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Needless to say, modern life has taken us further and further from these goals as we become more and more dependent on others for our energy sources, our food, our material resources. We're trapped in a lot of ways by the modern world systems were struggling mightily and sometimes not even motivated to struggle to reduce our carbon footprint, to eat local foods, to get off the grid, to reduce our waste, so on and so on. And yet it's virtually impossible in this culture. The good news, though, is that we are grappling with the issues. Something in our deepest sense of Benedict's teaching is still tugging at our consciousness. Where is it? What is it? I would like to submit one possibility, one which, when I first discovered it some years ago, seemed so amazingly obvious and so subconscious. It's the one place where Benedict does address the relationship of the monastic with all of creation, and that's the chapter on material goods, chapter 31 to 34. And I'm going to, since he was using the PowerPoint anyway, I decided that I would do one, one slide. So um, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But first of all, I want to just introduce the whole notion of these chapters. They're really simple chapters. They basically talk about who gets what when. And, um, yeah, you can leave that just like that. Whoop, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> it's the not yet kingdom. If you were to press the contemporary Benedictine to find some piece of something ecologically conscious in the rule, as I suggested in my opening sentences, 
he or she would most likely go to the line in chapter 31.10. All things are to be treated as vessels of the altar. That's kind of our catchphrase. That one we can always pull out of our heads. And in fact, you really can't get a better and more complete piece of advice than that. But I'd like to go deeper into it and suggest that it is in the layers of it that one finds an even more profound truth than the already challenging and inspiring literal meaning. First of all, Many monastics forget that the admonition about the vessels of the altar wasn't originally directed toward everybody. It's in the instruction towards one individual, the cellarer. This person was the true steward of the goods of the monastery. Everybody else was to follow his example, but he was the one who was responsible in the long run. By his faithfulness, it can be suggested the others would be inspired. And you wouldn't dare to show any less reverence, or you'd certainly be embarrassed, or at least accountable. So this is usually more effective in human encounters, I think, than preaching or punishing as a way of improving behavior. Simply do it yourself and see how it looks. And then everybody else is kind of embarrassed not to do it as well. You know, this is how we pull up the, the norm in a monastic community, isn't it? Benedict gives a whole list of qualities the seller is to have, and they're essentially the same as those for the abbot, and they're taken almost verbatim from Paul's list of qualities for bishops. So the seller then basically, and the rest of us by implication, are the abbot over things. We have, we have some control, but not total control. We are responsible for them. The abbot over things. These things are given to be used by the community members, but they're not given randomly. They're given as needed. Those who need less should consume less, is what Benedict says. That's one of the places where he's pretty clear. Those who need more should receive it in humility and recognize that their weakness is being accommodated. Now, this turns the world's notion of consumption totally upside down, doesn't it? We live in a world that preaches consumption for consumption's sake. If you can have it, then you should have it. If you can't quite afford it, you should get it anyway and delay the consequences. And if you have more, it is a mark not of weakness in any way, but of success, of strength, and even of happiness. I don't know if everybody has this in their part of the country, but we have a commercial right now for Best Buy where the lady tells the man they really need a new TV set. And in the background, the Greek chorus starts singing, I want it now, I want it now, I want it now. Or no, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. It's the new national anthem, isn't it? I want it all, and I want it now. And this background singing in this guy's pure pleasure in buying this new television set. I want it all and I want it now. In the monastery, says Benedict, one should receive not only as there is need, but also with the consideration of the person's ability to use responsibly. You get it, you get it with gratitude, you get it with humility, you get it with the recognition that perhaps it's a special weakness in me that I need this. And it sorts the needs from the wants in a really different way than the I want it now commercial. The seller issues things to those, quote, in whose manner of life he has confidence. The things are given, they're used, and then they're given back. 
This is the essence of communal life, and if we develop the ability to see the whole world as a community, then this is the cycle which should motivate all life and all use of resources. Things are given, used, and given back. Now, as if this were not a powerful enough image, I'd like to take it one step further. Probably the most profound and shocking bit of theology occurs when one begins to realize that this chapter on the goods in the monastery has a familiar ring from somewhere else in the rule. Some years ago, I published an article in which I laid out in parallel columns two pieces of the rule, and their similarities were unmistakable. So this is where I get to do my little one slide, because... um, because I can. <laughs> I was just going to explain this to you, but it's much better now that I have PowerPoint. And God created PowerPoint. Chapter 32, the tools and goods of the monastery. The goods of the monastery, that is, it's tools, clothing, or anything else. And it was interesting because you used the word tools in a couple of your things, too. Should be entrusted to brothers whom the abbot appoints and in whose manner of life he has confidence. Good, sensible instruction. He will, as he sees fit, issue to them the various articles to be cared for and collected after use. What I was just talking about is that cycle of use. The abbot will maintain, yeah, they're really recycling. The abbot will maintain a list of these so that when the brothers succeed one another in their assigned task, he may be aware of what he hands out and what he receives back. It's a nice practical little consideration, but here's the thing that just knocked me out when I found it. Whoever fails to keep the things belonging to the monastery clean, and this is still part of this, treats them carelessly, should be reproved. Okay, obviously, if you can't take care of this stuff, you're not going to get it the next time. If you can't take care of this stuff, you've damaged the fabric of community. But here's the thing that really knocked me out. Chapter 4, the tools for good works. And it begins with a list of good practices. And again, this totally parallels with what you were saying because it starts out with the things from Scripture. Do not kill, do not steal, do not lie, etc. Then it goes into the New Testament, um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, being a peacemaker and being and the, the um, works, uh, works of mercy to visit the sick and clothe the naked. And then it goes into some things just about the practice of living in community, you know, the... Don't let the sun go down on your anger and those kinds of things. Whole big long list of stuff that one can do to be a good practitioner. These then are the tools of the spiritual craft. When we have used them without ceasing day and night and have returned them on judgment day, Our wages will be the reward the Lord has promised. The workshop where we are to toil faithfully at all these tasks is the enclosure of the monastery and stability in the community. Well, now we've got something totally more going on in that chapter about tools. So the cosmic wholeness of Benedict's sense of the world is summed up in these simple paragraphs. There's no such thing as a small act or a meaningless act in a life if one is living in mindfulness of their stewardship, of their position in the grand scheme of things. Everything points to a total and universal truth. 
all creation is united in the movement towards this ultimate unity and harmony. So, every time I pick up a broom or a hammer, every time I run water or turn on an appliance, I'm acting out my understanding of the meaning of life and the final judgment that all I have has been given as a gift and I must return it both positively maintained and positively used. The seller doesn't want the shovel back clean because you never got around to digging the hole. <laughs> the seller wants the shovel back clean because you did what you were supposed to and did no damage to the thing which had been loaned to you. And if this isn't a clear enough mandate, I'd like to return to that lovely line about the vessels of the altar and add even one more layer. The line is not original to Benedict, as the Benedictines in here, I hope, know. It is another one of the pervasive scriptural citations, and it comes from an obscure line in a minor prophet, Zechariah. Zechariah 14, 2021, announces that, quote, the pots shall be as the libation bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. And I think somebody yesterday referred to that kind of the new Jerusalem, the ideal community. The prophet was making one of those on that day prophecies. On that day when the Lord comes, on that day when the earth and the heavens have been restored, Jerusalem is the new Jerusalem, then everything will be a vessel of the altar. It's straight out of that prophecy. So Benedict is evoking an eschatological image. Everything has become sacred in the already not yet kingdom. The New Jerusalem, the New Eden that the monastery is to symbolize has to be happening now. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The reverence for all things as vessels of the altar implies that we got to Jerusalem and everything is a sacred vessel. Every person then is a sanctified minister of God. Everybody's working in the temple, aren't they? Everybody is a sanctified minister of God. Everyone has been ennobled and empowered to share in the divine, the divine mysteries and the divine ministry of creation. You know, if once every thousand times we used a tool or a natural resource, we'd realize the totality of this truth, we would be transformed. If by our example we could bring others to this, they might be transformed. They might feel a little more like they were living in the kingdom as well. But to develop such mindfulness, of course, is always a challenge. Once again, we return to the notion of thinking, shaping, practice, and practice, shaping, thinking. We have to continue to ask ourselves the hard questions in a time of great complexity. It's no longer reasonable to assume that everything we need is going to be produced and contained in the monastery. So how do we at least keep reminding ourselves about our dependencies? How do we develop an awareness of where things come from and how they're produced? And not just literally where they come from in terms of production, but where they come from. How committed are we to a simple lifestyle? How much can we adjust our expectations, and do we even want to? 
If we can't do everything, do we at least attempt to do something? If we do have bountiful resources, how do we preserve them, reverence them, share them, steward them, and be ready to return them? The central question remains, if the kingdom is here and the kingdom is now, who will act like it? Would this happen in Eden? And if people can't look to those who are supposed to be connected to the spiritual world, who are supposed to understand the unity of all creation, to whom can they look? You know, and this is the point he made. We have to be example. We have to have this so ingrained in us that people just see it. We don't have to be perfect, but we have to be trying. Um, in the life of St. Benedict, St. Gregory, or whoever wrote it, tells a story about Benedict having a vision and we love this one too, you know. It's one of those things that we grab onto as being inspiring without pulling it apart and realizing how scary some of it is. Um, the whole world was gathered up before his eyes in what appeared to be a single ray of light. And Gregory goes on to explain how that is the light of contemplation. All creation is bound to appear small, he says, to a soul that sees the Creator. We tend to think of that on that very transcendental meditational level of, you know, all creation is bound to appear small to a soul that sees the Creator. But I don't think this merely suggests that contemplation raises one to where all the world is insignificant in perspective. It raises one to where one sees, like that moon rise, or uh, earth rise from the moon, the perspective. Not only is it a perspective of um, contemplation putting me, quote, above the world, but contemplation helping me to see the world in a different way, that all the world can be seen and understood then as a single entity. And if a single entity, then a single responsibility with all acts in every single act and all life in a single light.